Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Preisman. I am delighted to be joined today by my friend, Jesse David Fax, who is a senior editor at Vulture, where he works as the site's comedy critic and serves as the chief curator of the magazine's event series. He's also the host of the hit podcast, Good One, where he interviews comedians about their process. He lives in Brooklyn, New York, and his book is called The Comedy Book. Welcome, Jesse. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Ah, oh, it's so good to ha- to talk to you about this. I've been I've been waiting. I I, I think I want to start with the idea that common wisdom is that studying a joke too hard makes it unfunny, and yeah. I feel like it's your life's work to disprove <laughs> that idea. And so we you have your vulture stuff and the podcast, and now you have this book to to convince yeah. us. Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it was. I just sort of wanted to do it once and I thought I did it. I like, what's who knows? But the first time I ever tried to explain how a joke worked or how a sketch worked. And I was like, I, I had an insight on it and I wanted to do it. And then, and then someone was like, you sh- shouldn't do it. Like, I think edit- editors were like, well, you can write about comedy, but you shouldn't sort of explain why something's funny or something like that. And, or, and I had commenters who were sort of like, you're not supposed to do this. While other people were like, enjoy the article. And then once people said they couldn't do it, I'm not like that type of a person. But I, I did sort of, I was clear. I was like, I am doing it. Clearly can. And then I, and then what I sort of saw was like, once I put my level of sort of thinking towards comedy, it lived up to my sort of, I wouldn't say scrutiny, but lived up to my level of obsession. There sort of was so much to talk about and think about and you know, I had listened to sort of the podcast where comedians do that, but felt like there's not enough. Like, it's not going deep enough. They're not, they might not have the sort of critical vocabulary to sort of discuss things because comedians are ultimately limited by their sort of personal experience. So they have to talk about in terms of like, how do I get through this weekend or whatever, where I can be more detached. And the more I did it, the more I was able to reveal. And then like, I sort of just sort of built a base of it. And then through the podcast, Somewhere along the way, comedians were like, okay, cool. You can do this. We can do this. We're going to do the thing, the one thing we're not supposed to do. Because I think a lot of comedians had been desperate to be taken seriously. And be it because of some sort of childhood trauma or (laughs) because they're comedians. But they just sort of like, they're like, we're working really hard. And I think I did a good job, you know, and I want to be seen and I want to be paid attention to. and. And I just sort of like, you know, I've done, let's say, 200. I have no idea. And every one is different. Every yeah. they, they contradict each other. They'll be like, all comedy is this. And the next one's like, well, actually, comedy. And that's the goal. The goal has always been like, there's such a range. There's no one way of doing it. And that's what's so exciting about it. I love that. And 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 you really 
make the case that comedy is an art form that we should be paying attention to, just like any other art form. And I love, Jesse, that your intellectual endeavor of, of writing about comedy includes so much theory. And mm. I, I, your note section for this book is, is intimidating. Is it? Tell me about... Tell me about that. Tell me about putting together all, all the theory stuff while talking to regular dummies. No offense. No problem. <laughs> well, there's a few things. One, when I set out to have all these things to reference, I forgot that I'd also have to do all these footnotes or these all these endnotes. And I was like, I wish I didn't write a book like this. But it is because like over the course of the years, I'd I had met or interacted with comedy academics, and there's not many of them. And I, I got a sense of frustration that they were not taken seriously in academia. They're very often, if not, I think every single one of them essentially has to sort of like do comedy academia as a sort of side gig. And and I thought they had so many interesting things to say. Right. So then I was like, well, they've already said so much like and. I'm not going to pretend to rewrite what their opinions were. So then I try to collect all the things I thought are really interesting that sort of fit into sort of my general topics that I already knew I wanted to get into. So there's like the chapter I was already going to write about timing and how comedy is used to process tragedy. And like, you know, I was writing a chapter around the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and Philip Skopansky had just released a book called Tragedy Plus Time that really exhaustively looked at this one issue. And Daniel Fuentes Morgus Daniel Fuentes Morgan had all the, this, this book called Cry, Laughing to Keep from Dying. And I read that and that was sort of formative. And Beck Crafting, who's a comedy academic who has written about a lot of subjects and has, was a really useful sounding board. And then once you get into it, then I was sort of like doing all this academic search, which was sort of was not my plan. And I, and I wanted to bring that to the fore because like oh, there's so many goals for of the book, but one is like, oh, good goals to take comedy seriously and like to create a foundation of doing so. And part of that is to like shine a light on sort of the work that's already being done. And then I think I also thought it was fun to like, the book just jumps from high low all the time to like, what are sort of these sort of most esoteric or highbrow references I can do when I'm, when I'm quoting non-comedy academic sort of philosophers or whatever. And that to me is just so funny. There's such stupid jokes in this book that I wrote while also having like, like, you know, Heidegger quotes or stuff like that. To me, that's it, like, that's, that's, that to me, it's like, that's who I am, I guess. So I was like, well, that's what the book should have. Your love of the Simpsons really shines through in, yeah. in that. Formative. I'm like, that's what, like, I wanted it to feel like, oh, you know, was, the goal is like, I want this to feel like a Lisa, I wanted this to feel like a Lisa episode of the Simpsons. I love that. And I like that you, in your introduction, I feel like the way I've described it is sometimes you get into a room and lock eyes with my husband, who is a stand-up comedian, and you two get really intense really yeah. quickly. And what I'm seeing in this introduction and, and throughout the book is this is not just for those intense comedy nerds you really kind of go through the work of defining like what a joke is, for, yeah. for instance. And, and, and so, so tell me a little bit about that, because I do think there are plenty of people who say to my husband, like, 
Oh, you're a comedian. Have you heard the one about the blah, blah, blah? <laughs> of the many goals of the book, as I said, was I was just started getting so annoyed with how people talked about comedy who, who were not comedians or me, you know, and and even I was kind of getting annoyed at comedians, but like they just sort of words existed. So they throw it around and the, and you'd hear people say things like. There's not even like jokes in this. I don't like it. There's not even jokes in it. And and if if I went, what do you mean? Right. They because most of the time they're talking about a sitcom with fewer jokes. And I was like, well, most sitcoms jokes are not. Have you met the blah, blah, blah. They did this and that. They, their jokes are characters saying something in a sort of funny way or that are, is indicative of what that character is like. And and then joke jokes is like this because joke jokes or joke as I mean, it's like jokes that you see in a joke books. Knock, knock, who's there? Chicken Crest Road is a joke joke or a priest, a rabbi and something went on the bar. <laughs> like those that word is the same word as what comedians do. But that is not what comedians have done for the last 80 years. Or they shouldn't have. Some comedians have started doing it again. I, I don't understand why. It's probably because of Twitter. But um, <laughs> those are a different thing. Uh, jokes have a, are a folk tradition. No one knows who writes jokes. They And they've been studied as folk traditions, right? They're like, you know, there's like books about how dead baby jokes came to prominence during a time when the sort of abortion debate was happening. And as a result, they're like, those jokes were a manifestation of the anxieties, whatever. I, I, I find a lot of it in name. But that tradition is is related, but not exactly the same thing as comedy, which is an art form, which is a popular culture that is top down. There's people that are creating a thing that reflects who they are as people. And I needed to differentiate because when I say you can analyze comedy, I'm saying you're analyzing an art form. You can analyze artists, people that are expressing themselves. To analyze jokes is really like projection, right? It's just sort of like cobbling together a bunch of different things together. And it felt, you know, the first chapter really had to define the terms because I do think when I talk to Josh, we can skip like days worth of conversation to be like, oh, did you see how this person opened their special with this one thing? They'd even do like, because we know all the terms, we know what we're talking about, all this. For a lot of people, I understood reading it would have they watch comedy, but they haven't really thought about it. And and they didn't understand what's happening. You know, I, I write about how a lot of people see comedians like they're wizards when they're really magicians. Right. They like they see them like magically. They're saying funny things. They're getting up there like me talking. But somehow it's so funny. And really, like a lot of work is being put into it, even if they're sounding like a person just talking up there. So I wanted to sort of like the first chapter is really trying to be like this is what comedy this is what i mean by comedy and like kind of have to get on board with this perception because i do think you know part of calling a comedy book is like joke books is a tradition right so it's like i think people go into those being like i'll learn how to say funny things out loud and it's like that's kind of not what this is for no. this is it's a matter of like learning why you might find something funny that you find funny or maybe expanding your understanding of a thing that you don't find funny, but you maybe find interesting. And, you know, and it's and then it's a way of doing a workaround of the sort of dead frog stuff, right? The E.B. White and Catherine White quote about how you can't do comedy because you can't analyze humor because it's cutting up the dead frog. And and as I explained then, it's like they're kind of talking about a different thing, like comedy as we know it didn't exist. The term stand up mm -hmm. 
didn't exist yet. So they're talking about jokes and they're talking about humor writing. If they saw what we see, they'd be like, yeah, you could definitely talk about that. <laughs> I love that. And I, I think that one of the things that people don't always think about, which I think about a lot because I'm home alone most nights, <laughs> is that comedians need an audience more than any other art form. And I love that you, you talked to Sheila Hetty about this because it's a real literary podcast. <laughs> yeah. And and she she acknowledges that, you know, writing in a room by yourself all day is really hard, but comics have it worse. Yeah. I mean, I, I the whole of the many things that runs through the book is this idea of audience. And I and comedy is an audience dependent art form or stand up is an audience dependent art form. And I and I and I look at it from a few different ways, right? First I sort of explain what that means. Because I don't think Comedians get this is definitely a thing like comedians get it and comedians probably get it. But laymen don't really realize what it means when we say comedians write jokes. Right. And what most often it means, even the most word specific comedian you can think of means they went up with an idea of something they cared about and then said it in front of people enough times that somewhere their brain thought of the perfect thing to say. And they knew it was the perfect thing to say because of how the audience responded. And until the audience responded, they didn't know. And that's the only way it worked. And there's so many, you know, I, I the most exciting example I write about in the book is Chris Rock sort of learning who he was as a comedian by bombing for like five years. I and didn't know that, Jesse, that he went out with the goal yeah. of, of feeling really shitty. <laughs> like, well, that the thing is like he... The, I, it's hard to speculate, but it doesn't seem like it makes him feel as shitty as it does other people. You know, like I, I think if he went out one time and it worked right away, he wasn't gonna be like, "Well, I got a bomb for three more years." I think he just realized like he needs to try things because I think any comedian, any there, it's it's why just sort of like getting an audience laugh is not enough because you can sometimes get an audience laugh by manipulating them a lot of different ways. But to get something that can reach more people and it can be lasting demands really paying attention to the sort of gears of how the response is. I do think, I don't know if this is fun for other people or would be, but like when I sit and watch a comedy show, I'm watching people perform and I'm watching an audience perform. I'm like, how are they doing? What are they responding to? You know, it's been really interesting the last three years because three or four years, they've been relearning how to be audiences. Like I can tell there's like some people are new to the city because they haven't because of COVID. So they are, they're still new to being an audience and they're laughing weird or they're laughing too loud. There's all these different little things that you can pay attention to as part of the show. Right. So and that gets into the sort of the next thing about audiences, which is like as a result, comedy is an extremely present art form. You go up with something you thought of that day or you thought of you, you might find something on stage and you'll talk about that the entire set means as a result there'll, there'll be jokes performed let alone you know written days after 9-11 as i write about in the book extensively or any national tragedy that happens it happens over and over again and even more so and then audience and oh sheila heady thing so and but then so it's sort of taking that further right so the book sort of has different chapters sort of organized by different themes of how comedy operate and the last chapter is about connection and I want, you know, that chapter is sort of more personal. It's sort of just more emotional in general. And I wanted 
to sort of show the sort of practical matter of what this looks like and what they offer each other and how the sort of positive of sort of comedian is sort of that presentness to it. But the, the, the difference is, unlike other artists, how their then life is, right? They can't make their work without the audience, right? So what does that mean during a pandemic? And they can't, it's for the most part, it's a thing done alone, not where you live, right? So Sheila Heedy says, like, well, at least I can get dinner afterwards or something. <laughs> and her brother's a comedian. That's part of the reason I asked. And part of the reason I asked is also like, I had read Pure Color and that book is like, somewhat about like what it's like to be an artist right and i was like well comedians are such weird artists right and she basically goes like it's really lonely and i and i write there's a sort of disconnection that i think a lot of artists have they sort of are observing the world and and their art is their way of sort of how they see it or or sort of their ways to try to connect to the world and i say that like comedians essentially are because their art is then they sort of are carrying that disconnection around with them and, you know, I'm sure you see it like you, there's a, comedians are at where they're at, but they're also not there a lot. It's very hard for comedians to be present. And because they're, as I explained, like comedies, American comedy, the American comedy tradition, the modern comedy tradition parted, started with sort of cultural outsiders as sort of Jew, Jews and, and African-Americans. And then it sort of became an art form for outsiders just like people who were. And I think this is a long way of saying that it's, how do I put it? There is a, there's a price to the, the sort of the high of what it means to be so connected to that many people in such an immediate way, then has a price where you have the, the, the opposite of that, which is like, you then go to a hotel and you could like not be more alone. Yeah. Does that resonate? I, it sure does. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But so let's go back a little bit. You talked about, you know, comedy post 9-11 and you have a a chapter about timing. And if not comic timing necessarily, like how you deliver a line, it's like what's quote unquote too soon. So partly it's just because I I love her and I want to involve her in this podcast. But you you write about seeing Alison Leiby perform her one woman show about abortion on the day or the day after. Ro- well, yeah, well, I read about not seeing it. Yes, yes, yes. First you write about not seeing it. <laughs> so, yeah, it was sort of interesting. So that chapter at first was only about 9-11. Then I, and I realized it, it became too distracting. People were like, well, that's your 9-11 chapter. But, you know, and I was like, oh, wait, so it needs to be more about how comedy, how, you know, the book in general is about how comedy functions as an art form but also how it functions as part of our culture and so i sort of wanted sort of another example and it was honestly a thing uh my partner alina pointed out because she went to me to that show the the day roe v wade was overturned because it's it was like a traumatic event for her and so we went to this show they were over was overturned she didn't want to go to the show we already we already had tickets in it but i was like they'll talk about it. they're not going to get into it but they'll mention it exists 
because that's what comedians do. They, they, by being a present art form, it means they sort of talk about what is in the air and hopefully maybe relieve some of the weight of it, even for a moment in time, right? And so we go to this show and three comedians, three male comedians go up and they do not address it at all. Even one talks about politics in a sort of general way. And you're like, well, any moment, maybe they'll just like do an aside. All you really have to do so little. Like I, I went to a show the next day. Jay Jordan opened it by being like, look, it's shitty. We all know. But like we have this next hour and a half together. We can have fun. And that's all you really have to do. And so that didn't happen. So then I was I was thinking about how I went to the wrong show and and or my friend J.F. Harris explained like they essentially it's like malpractice, like they didn't do the job of comedian. And then I realized, like, also in New York City that night, Allison Leiby was doing a show like she didn't know when Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned, but she had a show about abortion and Roe v. Wade was overturned. So I just asked her about what the, that weekend was like. And. It's in those moments that it really is amazing what comedians can give people. Like, you know, Pete Davidson, Pete Davidson opened SNL recently. Yeah. yeah. And people are like, oh, no. And then he's like, my dad died in 9-11. You're like, oh, yeah, this is exactly, exactly what you should talk about. Which was like, he, he just opened SNL and be like, my dad died in 9-11. I, my mom accidentally bought Dangerous by Eddie Murphy. I laughed for the first time, right? And you're like... I don't know if you're right there, but essentially it's like the idea that like laughter is the best medicine. And it's like, well, it depends on what is your ailment. If yeah. you have like a disease, it's not like there's studies that proven it just does not help. But if the you're but if what is hurting you is that you cannot laugh about something, if something feels too heavy to move, the thing that comedy can do better than anything else we have so far as a species is make a thing feel lighter. You know, I, I quote Viktor Frankl and he says like it's. And so Viktor Frankl comes up with this theory, you know, after being in a concentration camp and talking essentially about like how they were able to get through. And he's and I don't I can look up the exact quote if I'm going to. That's OK. All right. Anyway, so basically it goes like comic and uh, humor can offer an aloofness. Right. Mm -hmm. And just the ability to sort of be detached from something a little bit to have it be lighter is so necessary to sort of like. You, you both sort of acknowledge the moment and then sort of be able to move forward. And it is like fundamentally like why we have it. It is like why we as a species evolved to sort of figure out ways to make each other laugh because, you know, tragic stuff happens all the time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I wanted to to get to is is your use of the word fearless. Mm. It's It's often described... It's often used to describe comics who, like, don't give a fuck. And yeah. what you're talking about is, is comics who are not afraid to be vulnerable. And I think about this specifically because we just saw a pub date from Maria Bamford, Gary Goldman, and Aparnan and Churla. And what a trio of yeah. comedians who are, are willing to lay it all out. Yeah, it's so funny. I have it. When I wrote that sentence in the book about how fearless is defined, I was like, what well, is the best sentence in the book? <laughs> this is the part, this is a sentence of the book people will remember. And I don't know how we decided to call tough comedians fearless, like comedians willing to offend people, willing to hurt people's feelings. I don't know why, because even most other tough comedians would be like, it's not that hard to do to go up there and say slurs out loud. Yeah. And 
And it's partly that it's such an and it's bo- and that doing being that type of comedian is born out of a fear of being vulnerable. Like that's the thing. It's so fearful to go up on stage and slash out on groups or whatever because you're so scared someone's going to see you. It is like truly the most baby little, you know, as you describe comedians like this as bad little boys. It's such a little kid thing to do. And and it's probably born out of they bombed one time and it was so bad that they never will do it again. So as a result, they're invulnerable. But then they're not expressing themselves. They're not being themselves. And in contrast, I write about Maria Bamford, Tignataro, and Margaret Cho specifically. And, I, and it's this idea that like, on you know, I contrast it with Louis C.K. where it's like, unlike being a perv, like after, having mental illness can actually hurt you professionally. and And to talk about it, to talk about an industry, we might be like, especially with, you know, with women be like, oh, she's crazy. We shouldn't work with her to do that anyway. That, that is actually to confront that is to to be without fear or to understand that it is something to be fearful of and proceeding anyway, because you realize it will help people. That's why they do it, you know, like go help them as well. But really, it's like now it has become so much more common for comedians to talk about having mental illness. It's it's just like easy. It's unbelievable. You go to a comedy show, it's just like I have this or that. That is like truly a 15 year phenomenon. Like 15 years ago, Maria Bamford was doing, no one else really was doing it to the degree she was. She changed how people, what is normal for to be spoken of. And it wasn't easy. It, it, but she knew that is what a comedian can do. It's hard to talk about things. Comedians are good at talking, jokes make things easier to hear, you know, and the, you know, the goal, the hope is you reorient what we think of as, as challenging, you know, like the goal is to be like, what there's good and bad comedy or well done or hard or easy things. There's easy things to joke about. There's hard things to joke about. And I really want to give people the vocabulary to appreciate the people that are, who are really doing the hard stuff and doing it beautifully, doing it hilariously. But yeah, I mean like that, I had talked to Gary Aparna and, Maria and it was and I was like, there are too many comedians talking about mental illness now. And they're like, there can never be too many. Like they all remember the first time they heard any comedian doing it and how it how freeing it was. And like again, it's that being able to joke about something is like such a gift. And meanwhile, there are comedians out there who complain about wokeness and how they're not allowed to say anything anymore. And a lot of them have great not great. A lot of them have very lucrative deals with Netflix. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of people are scared, right? A lot of people like being scared. They're so, they built such a shell around themselves that they want an artist that reflects that to, so that they don't have to, in, they don't have to reflect at all, right? They're like, that's how I talk. That's good. End of story. And I think, and that's a lot of people. It's more people, right? The biggest comedians in the world and always have been for the most part, been a lot of people who do stuff like this. And I want people to be able to know that that's not necessarily good. Like, I, I you know, I have a chapter about it. I mean, you know, you read the book. But people <laughs> who are listening might not know. There's a chapter about a lot of the sort of like edginess and whatever. And the goal of that chapter is one to sort of, one, explain why comedians do it at all, right? I feel like people who don't like it don't even know why the comedians are doing it. They just think like, why is this person just going on stage and like complaining about trans it's so weird it's like well this is the tradition like there is an idea there's sort of like some academic explanation there's some like hypothetically 
liberal explanation for why you do it, whatever. And it, I think it's fair. Like, if the, I don't necessarily choose that. But then the goal was like, I don't want to like finger wag and be like, you, you are bad. I don't like you. You're bad people. I want to be like, this is why your art is worse. You've now become so obsessed with this goal of not doing what people say you can't say that you're now only saying a thing you're not even interested in saying. And again, the goal is like comedy is an art form. So if you're not expressing yourself, if you're not expressing what you care about, instead you're expressing not even what you don't care about. You're expressing just what, what people are saying you're not allowed to say. It, and it's it's easy. Like, that's the thing. Like, it seems hard because you can't go to work and say something that makes fun of transgender people because you have a job that's normal or whatever. So it seems hard to see Dave Chappelle be like, transgender people are bad or whatever he said. Actually, because it's a sensitive subject, it it puts so much potential energy into whatever he says or any comedian does this joke says that anything you say that is a relief will get a huge response. But that is cheap. That is a cheap thrill compared to like what more interesting comedians are doing. I love that answer. So, so maybe... A good question to leave you on is whose comedy is exciting to you right now? Oh, I, this is useful. I need to remember to write down this because I assume I'll be asked this all the time. I have answers, but I want to make sure I say all of them. Oh, cool. These are the, the people I'll say. All right. So one, a lot of people, I really... I've been writing about this for 11 years or whatever. And I, there were, let's say five years in, I was like, I think I'm, I think we're done. I don't think there's actually going to be any more good comedians. And then I saw a lot, Las Culturistas. And I was like, oh, never mind. Like, we're good forever. Like, it was the most exciting thing I've, I'd seen, like, my entire life was the first time I saw those guys. Right. So then now I, I know that there's always interesting things. If I don't know anyone new who's interesting, then I'm not doing my job. So, mm -hmm. Here are three people. One, Brittany Carney. She is a comedian in New York. She did this joke I saw her recently. And it was about being in Japan and watching a infomercial about teaching Japanese people to speak German. And she just sort of like goes through the one sentence they use and try to understand what they mean. It's just sort of like a type of comedy that I had not seen in a while, which is pieces like you're not just doing like a first person autobiographical story you're sort of like creating a structure and playing in it and she, her perspective is sort of so unusual and but so true and like everything she says only she can do then this guy benny feldman he does like one-liners and i find most one-lining one-liner comedians or most short joke comedians i I don't say I have an issue with, but I, I think often they're they hide behind them. They they they're it's almost like I can I'm so good at writing jokes that you didn't realize that I have not revealed anything about myself or how I see the world. And and I and I don't love the math of that, though. I like roast jokes, which is sort of its own context. I don't like just when a comedian just like does a joke up there. I feel like it's 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 a craft but it's it's not an art necessarily which is its own thing anyway so but a true one-liner comedian Stephen Wright Mitch Hedberg 
they create worlds in one sentence. And that world is like they are the god of it and the and it only makes sense in this. And so Benny Feldman is a comedian of that tradition. He he, he has Tourette's, which I'm I'm sure is probably part of why he does sort of shorter jokes. But he has a joke about the saying, if you teach a man to fish, I think about it all the time. And I, I, it's one of those things that I'm like a little kid where I try to say it, but I'm laughing through it so I can't get the rhythm right. So just look it up. Yeah. It is so funny. And the last one is Francesca de Uva. Francesca de Uva was, I think I, I might have been one of the first shows after the pandemic that I went to. Pretty major is a show that Vulture puts on with Union Hall and they booked Francesca de Uva. I had no idea who she was. And she's like, she just starts introducing a song. I don't know what her song's going to be like. And she's like, I'm a nanny. This is sort of a song about it. And she sings this song about, it's called Nanny Franny, Nanny Franny. And it is like, it was just like the funniest. It like truly, I was crying laughing, like, and I couldn't believe it. I just, it was like a new type of musical comedy I haven't heard. She has a background in like digital music composition. So if you just listen to the music of it, you're like, oh, this is like incredible. It's like a, like a, there's movements and and she's playing all the different parts, but it's like a pop song. So all these people really excite me. Comedians, comedians rule. Yes, they do. Yes, they Jesse, do. Before we go, I, I need more recommendations from you. Give me a book recommendation or two. Sure. Yes. So no one needs me to recommend book books, but so here are books about comedy. Well, two books about comedy and one third thing. So. People always recommend Steve Martin's book, Born Standing Up, when they're like, I'm a starting comedian. I'm starting out to be a comedian. I need to read that book. And it's a very good book. I've read it multiple times. I love it. But I actually think Joan Rivers' first book, Enter Talking, is one, is just a better book for a starting out comedian. Because a lot of Steve Martin's book is actually what it's like to be an extremely successful comedian. Right. It's like, oh, it's a story about how one person became one of the most successful comedians that ever lived. And Joan's first book is just up until she gets her break. Spoiler alert. And it's rough. Like, it's not it's it. She has a very hard time up until the very last page of the book. If you're an audiobook listener, she reads the audiobook. And the ending is so beautiful. How she reads the ending. Yes. Side note, if you're an audiobook listener, listen to Martin Short's audiobook. Don't read that book. That That book is meant to be performed. It is not a book. It is like only meant to be. All to. of the good tips. Yeah. So, and then one other book, well, one author and book I want to recommend, this guy, Dr. Seuss. Have you read Dr. Seuss recently? I've he, heard of him. I haven't really. Is he, like, I, it's one of the hackiest thing to do is like sort of be a white person and take a sort of not rap thing and put like rap slang to it. But it truly is like, I read it and think like this guy has bars or whatever. But his use of language. I've, I've never been more jealous of a writer. So there's this one, this book that I'm reading a lot for no reason called, Oh, the things you can think. So you're just talking things you can think of. And one is, and you don't have to stop. You can think about schlop, 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 beautiful schlop, beautiful schlop with a cherry on top. And I go, that's my favorite page of writing I've ever read. It is so, no one else is doing that. <laughs> He knew a thing or two, that guy. He just, he understood that like kids, but really all people. It's definitely kids because, but people are like this as well, but people have all this other baggage on them. Like don't actually need proper nouns of real things. They know what you're talking about. 
Like you don't know, like you, you have no idea what schlop is based on how I read it. It ends up being like, I think like a dessert, but you know that he's described, you know, meaning out of that. It's in, anyway. So I want to recommend Dr. Seuss. If anyone like has, if you're in a bookstore and you're like, I have like three minutes to kill, just pick up any of them. And you're like, his use of language. I don't know. I'm not as, I, as I told you ahead of time, it's a real quirky answer, but I was like, he's maybe my favorite writer. I love that. Jesse, thank you so much. The comedy book is out now. I do want to give a special shout out to your book launch party, which is Tuesday, November 7th at the Bell House. And lots of good people will be performing. <laughs> I was thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one person we both know fairly well. You yes. might know more than I do, though. And I will be answering questions while eating hot, spicy chicken wings, a la hot ones. I love that. I love that. Yeah, for you. I was just nervous if there's going to be a bunch of comedians that the question and answer part might be boring. So <laughs> I was like, <laughs> well, I need to up the tension. Um, but it's look, it's at least the host is going to be very handsome. Yes, that's true. Jesse, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.